Well, after the message, we'll be singing from hymn 35, stanzas 1, 2, and 4, which is based on the words of Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 to 39. I'll encourage you to have that passage open before you to Job chapter 2 and verse 11 to chapter 3 to verse 26. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a long time ago, in a land far away, sat a lonely man on the ash heaps. This wealthy man of the East had been reduced to such pain and sorrow. He lost everything, wealth, family, and health. As he sat there, he picked his painful sores with the broken pottery. His friends came, maybe weeks later, we're not told exactly how long, they were coming from a distance. Finally, he opened his mouth and he began to say things that made no sense at all. But they were expressions of honesty telling us where he was at. Job chapter 3 is probably one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. It's like Psalm 88, which ends with the words, darkness is my only friend. Other than Psalm 88 or Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah 20 being another chapter in the Bible that expresses the same kind of thought, These are very few places in the Bible that are this dark. And of course, the biggest exception, the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he went through. You know, you think of the Garden of Gethsemane, where he shed great drops of blood while perspiring under duress from God's approaching wrath for sin. And also his cry on the cross where he bore our iniquities. Lament has always been a part of expression of faith. Now consider a good part of the Psalms. They're what? They're laments. Not all are happy, clappy songs. It's amazing how many of them sway from euphoria to depression back to some kind of resolve or praise for the Lord. It's one of the reasons why the church has drifted away from biblical expressions of faith when she doesn't sing the Psalms. In our day, everything has to go with a swing, including Christian worship. Plaintive or mournful songs are thought to be boring, tedious, monotonous, and below Christianity somehow, but... They are a part of a biblical testimony. And and they express to us how we feel sometimes, whether whether we admit that or not. To avoid the reality of pain disfigures and disforms the nature of faith because faith often reveals its greatest, greatest triumph through anguish. 
And that's what happens to those who have had to deal with these types of trials in life. In this case, a man's suffering led him to the Lord's heart. And so I call you to hear that, this this chapter, chapter 3 especially, under the theme, crying in the darkness, Job curses the day of his birth and under two headings, from cursing to lamenting. And then secondly, from lamenting to questioning. So first of all, from cursing to lamenting. There are a number of things that we note as background. First of all, Job's three friends, the three wise men of the East. They arrive perhaps expecting Job to die. And they respond initially very well. They weep with him. They remain silent with Job as he sat in silence on the ash heap. Silence or listening ear are often a good response to someone who is in sorrow. When someone is mourning, we need to let them mourn. Too often we're quick to rush in with words of explanation when few or no words are suitable. It's not always suitable to cite Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love him at every moment of trouble. Though those words indeed are true. Job's friends initially did the right thing. They wept when he wept. But to say nothing at all for seven days, that must have put quite a strain on the relationship. Silence for a long time can can be awkward. And as it is revealed later in the book, their perception of this situation is very different. They will claim that all human suffering is a result of someone's sinfulness. According to them, no such thing as this happens to the righteous. But these friends are not the only ones who are silent. God is also silent. He hasn't said anything up to this point. There's no prophet, no comment, no reassuring word. And one other thing we note here from the context, and that is time. Time has a way of of changing your mood. It's one thing to experience bereavement initially, but six weeks later, time marching on and perspective changes. You remember the way that Job initially responded to this. It was remarkable. This, this, This initial response, God has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's no longer as strong as he thought. His pain is very difficult. And as Calvin comments here, he says, Job shows himself not to be so steadfast as if he did before, but showed himself a frail man. And note his language. A lot of parallels in in this particular book. For example, his wife had told him to curse God and die. He didn't cave into her suggestion to curse God and die. Instead, he cursed the day of his birth. He wished that it was wiped completely off the calendar. Imagine that. The joy of birth, the blessing of a child coming into the world is contrasted with the desire to die. 
He wished that he was never born. Now, an announcement of a male child or a female child is one of the happiest moments in our lives, in the lives of parents, that is. It must have been that way for Job's parents as well, but he's so overtaken by sorrow that he didn't want to be part of his family. You notice how often his words here begin in the first part of his lament with the word let or may, as in other translations. Verse 4, let that day be as darkness. Verse 5, let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Verse 9, that night let thick darkness Seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. And in verse 7, Job even suggests that the rousing of Leviathan with his destructive forces would be better than him being born. Who's Leviathan? Well, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about this technical term in in, uh, Scripture, um, what Leviathan was or who he was, this enormous creature, like a great sea creature, perhaps a a dinosaur in the ocean. Leviathan was obviously a, a fearful creature. And so Job is blurting out a wish that in some way this sea creature will swallow up the day of his birth. And again, highlighting the depth of his pain. Furthermore, just as he wished the sun would not rise on his day of birth, so he wished that the stars of the night would not come out and see the dawn of day. Verse 10. What are we to make of all of this? We need to remember that this is the word of God. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says what? It says, all scripture is God-breathed. This is a cry of one who's so overwhelmed with depression. He wished that in God's ordering of things, he never existed at all. And that's not a pleasant thought, you say. How can that be in the Bible? But again, we need to remember God's word is written for that purpose, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. These types of thoughts of anguish were experienced by the saints. We mentioned Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, wasn't easy for him. You know, he was ordained from his mother's womb. Brought God's word faithfully. But instead of receiving all the accolades and support of of those who heard him, no one changed. No one repented. And because of this, he suffered greatly. And if you take the time sometime today, look at Jeremiah chapter 20. And you can see that it's almost exactly word for word of Lamentations chapter 3. That's uh, Jeremiah 20. I'm sorry, uh, Job chapter 3. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 14 to 18, very similar to Job chapter 3. Or think of the prophet Elijah. 
In 1 Kings 19, days after the Lord's victorious power displayed over Baal and the false prophets, sending down fire from heaven to consume the altars, Elijah was threatened by Queen Jezebel. His life was unbearable. He was tired. He went into the wilderness and sat under a broom tree and said to the Lord, I've had enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. So what do we say about these kinds of responses? Well, we can read the Job chapter 3s and the Jeremiah 20s, and we can see that this is so dark, so gloomy. Is it even a Christian way of thinking? Is it even right? And granted, there are some words here that make no sense at all. They're difficult to understand. But those who've been bereaved or troubled can understand this cry of darkness. A crippling disease, a loss of a child, or some other deep trouble at home. C.S. Lewis said that when he lost his wife, joy to cancer, he felt this kind of bereavement and cynicism. He felt like there was no point to life. These are not easy things. Just this past week, there are people in our closest circles, or those that we have fellowship with broadly, who've gone through harrowing losses. When something like that happens, there can be an outburst, even a lashing out that makes no sense to others. But it is the cry of the heart, a way of saying, a way of saying I'm not at rest, I'm not at ease. C.S. Lewis said that his prayers just after his wife died were as a yell. But it was a prayer, it was a cry. We're searching for true comfort where true comfort can only be found, which is in, of course, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this teaches us that people like Job need our sympathy, not our cold diagnosis. None of us have ever gone through something as difficult as him. We can, think, we can thank God for that. We therefore have to be careful that we don't become so detached and unsympathetic. It's very easy to start throwing accusations like, did Job sin for wishing that he was never born? Well, to ask questions like that is missing the point of why this is written. He was on the very edge of the cliff, as it were, and he was refusing to jump. We look at this chapter and focus on Job's sin. It's focusing on the wrong place. The Holy Spirit wants us to grasp the anguish of this man. And it's an, it's an important lesson for us to learn in the way that we treat one another. Sometimes you can be so right in your eyes that you don't see the pain of what someone else is going through. Our theological accuracy can come at the expense of brotherly sympathy. And we're all guilty of this. Consider that for yourself, that we need to be sensitive 
to what other Christians experience. And one more brief thing John Calvin says on this chapter, let us learn not to brag in our own strength. We must not be deceived with such imaginations, but must assure ourselves that as long as God upholds us, we may well stand. But if he loosens his hand from us, we shall by and by be cast down. Thankfully, however, nothing is able to snatch the elect from God's hand. They're secure in Jesus Christ. Well, that's some application that we see from this. But we move on to consider some of the other parts of the the chapter in our second point where he moves from lamenting to questioning. Here in verses 11 and following, the questions start to come. And they all begin with that question, with the word rather, why? Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Verse 12. Why did the knees receive me or the breasts that I should nurse? Verses 20 and following. Why is the light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who longs for death but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who exceed who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And there are more questions like that in the book. Job chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 say, what strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones or is it, Is my flesh bronze? Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Is there not a time of hard service for a man on earth? And are not his days also like the days of a hired man? Like a servant who earnestly desires the shade? And like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? Essentially, he's saying life is short. Why does it have to be so miserable? Or chapter 9, verse 2. How can a man be righteous before God? Chapter 9, verse 29. If I am condemned, why do I labor in vain? Job chapter 10, verse 8. Your hands have made me and fashioned me an intricate unity, yet you would destroy me. Why? 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 These are hard questions. And we might have expected an end to his life right there and then with a lightning bolt coming down. But that's the wonderful encouragement that we get from this book. Job crossed the line absolutely. There's no question about it. Yet despite the frustrations, despite the hard questions, God doesn't rush in to reprimand him. He's not threatened by his questions. If he wasn't gracious, he would have been threatened. But mercy is found in his fatherly care for us and grace that's found in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
We cannot possibly, with our small, finite minds, understand all the mysteries there are to life. That's one of the reasons why the scriptures limit the mystery of God's ways to us. We don't know everything. If we did, we'd be God. For did Job find answers to all his questions? What was the answer? His answer was in this, that God is God and Job is not. God is God and we are not. And God is most glorified in all that happens. His ways are perfect. If they weren't, he wouldn't be God. And the sooner we submit to his perfect will, the better off we are. That's what gives us peace in the midst of the storms of life. That's what helps us when the trials are great. Satan wants us to think wrong things about God. He also wants us to express the wrong views about God. That's how heresy arrives. When our views about God have gone askew, we make things up about the Almighty. I was recently reading the, a post written by Tim Chowleys. Some of you may, are, may be familiar with, with his posts um, online. Tim Chowleys and his wife recently lost their son, a young man who suddenly passed. And comments, he rather, he comments about um, chapter 2 of, of Job when um, Job's wife says, to him, curse God and die. Get it done with. And Charlie's asked the question, would it be okay for me to be angry with God? Now he knew the answer to that question. We should never resent the sovereignty of God and what he does. But in his reflection and in their time of grief, he had this to say. These are moments when our faith is tested. Questions about our health. Questions about the loss of a loved one. They challenge our faith. Pain can, be, can, can bring the biggest and fiercest temptations. We're tried and we're tested. And in the moment, in those moments, the questions are asked. Is your faith real in the hard moments of life? They challenge our convictions. Do we really believe what we say we believe? They challenge our test of love. Do we still respond in faith, obedience, and submission to God when life is challenging? Or does it, it, it rather, it does not mean that we cannot experience anger or frustration at the things that we're dealing with, but we cannot be angry at God. As Tim Challies points out, who am I to be angry at God and what he has done? Who am I to disprove of what he's permitted? Who am I to conclude that God has done something that he should not have? Or even suggest the notion. I might be angry at what I do, or I might be angry at you do, he says, or at the situation. But all of us are sinful and all of us are foolish. All of us are wrong-headed. All of us sometimes 
bring harm even when we attempt to do good. And that's why God's word is needed for us. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says, No, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. But nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's actually not safe to be asking too many questions of God. He's the potter. And we're the clay. Romans 9. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, that the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? The truth is, if you want to follow the Lord, you have to be willing to endure Hardship. There's a cost to discipleship. It's like that hymn uh, which says, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken. Thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition. All I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. For if anyone understands suffering and who is sympathetic to our troubles, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's who we turn to. If anyone knows the darkness of the soul who cried in the darkness of sin, it was Christ on the cross who asked that question, why? Why? My God, my God, have you forsaken me? So that we can be comforted today in his mercy. And in his grace, we may have questions. We may have doubts. Satan assails the soul. But may we have a sense of the Lord's kindness, of the Lord's love, of his pleasure, of his favor in Christ's great love. How about you today? Are you looking to the one who laid down his life. Are you, is your soul at rest today in Jesus Christ? For who else may help you? Amen.